Satyam FJ8, Truth Prevails. By February 2007, I noted that my mind was still usually tense and that this tense feeling could not be slept off. But at times the mind was also serene. The heaviness of mind together with a lethargic physical state, a runny nose during the day and a tendency to doze off or sleep whenever there was nothing for me to do made me conscious that I was suffering from a mental disorder. I usually came alive physically and mentally after about an hour or two of working at Shell Wigmore where I had to deal with the minute-to-minute reality of customer service. But I did not wish to go back onto medication for I had not felt any the better with the risperidone and being on medication was not a long-term proposition for it could lead to undesirable physical side effects. I wished to achieve my sanity by mind control. I also wished to see whether in the absence of medication there would be a recurrence of the psychotic episode for which I was taken into care by the considerate British state in 2004. Further, I wished to live in the way that I was created. Rashmi kept pointing out to me from time to time, I had needed hospitalization in 2004 because of the severity of my delusions then, such as my considering the phone calls that she received from friends and colleagues as being UK big brother prompted calls to harass me, my attempt to travel to France without a proper passport, my distrusting workmen who used to come to our house to effect repairs, my doubting whether certain visitors from India who came to our house had been sent by the Indian government to spy on me, etc. Some of my interpretations of those happenings, described in detail earlier, might have been legitimate concerns but others were undoubtedly delusions. My present analysis of the events was that my mind had been so predisposed into believing that Vishnu was the all-pervading universal being to be seen as such, and that things that happened to me had a divine purpose behind it, that the mind was examining all matters in order to understand the manifestation of the so-called ultimate reality. Everything had to be examined, including mechanical things such as the functioning of the central heating boiler, the motor car and the computer to see if and when these would suffer a breakdown thereby causing a problem to be negotiated. Similarly, the house and its contents remained uninsured for a few years as we could not afford it, so would there be a burglary or structural damage? I got over that period of intense search over time but the residual mental illness had to be lived with and I had to cope with its downside health-wise. It was true that there were times when I was envious of normal people enjoying life optimistically going about their day-to-day work unaware or oblivious to questions that had haunted me, this is how I had been before I entered my 40s when I had a good career and went about my business with a clear mind dealing with the day-to-day realities of scientific research and playing sport. Now seeing former colleagues in well-to-do positions in their scientific careers I wondered to what heights I could have risen if only I had followed a different path. However, on reflection I was happy for my mental experience, especially since it had led me to delving into the important questions of our existence with an examination of information that I had been brought up with and that's surrounding me. Delusions or reality they form the human experience and cannot be ignored if only because mental disorders, ethos not conforming to the needs of a society, needed to be understood by societies and governments who had to take these into account when formulating and implementing policies for the welfare of the people. At my appointment on February 7, 2007, I was somewhat surprised when Dr. Shaba said that she was discharging me from under her care as I had come off my medication and had kept up with my 48-hour shift work at Shell Wigmore. I told her that I needed to keep my job going. She commented that I looked well for my 50 years of age, but that I should not overwork and that health and family were the important considerations to be borne in mind. She also said that she had not read my memoirs as she could not find time to do so but would keep them confidential in her files. It seemed that I had inundated her with unanswerable questions and this may partly have led to her discharging me. I did not question her decisions but felt that I did not wish my case details to remain suppressed in her files. I was minded to now send the memoirs to the University of Greenwich for its comments, for the proverb the pen is mightier than the sword came to mind. 
On reaching home I spoke to the Vice-Chancellor's secretary on the telephone in order to send the document by email and drafted a letter as follows, I am writing to you as a former employee of the University of Greenwich who had suffered from a kind of a mental disorder since 1998. The university could not however wait for the outcome of my medical consultation and treatment and had inexplicably dismissed me from service prematurely for alleged gross misconduct. I am now happy to say that my medical troubles are a thing of the past and I have been accordingly discharged by the consultant psychiatrist. The full details of my experiences have been written down in the attached memoirs which I am sending you for the university's comments and records as is appropriate for this matter. I aim to publish my memoirs in due course so that any concerns you have on its content should be expressed to me at this stage. In view of the update that I have provided I wish to return to working for the University of Greenwich as a scientist or in some other capacity. I have just turned 50 years of age and therefore still have much to contribute in terms of imparting or using my knowledge, and with the great environmental and international terrorism concerns of today a human being owes it to mankind to do what one can for world development, world peace and security at home and abroad. Is there any chance therefore of me being re-employed by the University of Greenwich? Rashmi however dissuaded me from engaging in fresh communications with the University of Greenwich for fear that it might lead to the court matter surfacing again. I therefore decided to let the sleeping dogs lie and look out for another opportunity to publicize my memoirs, which must be made available for all to read sooner or later. Rashmi was pleased that I had received a clean bill of health from Dr. Shaba. I wrote to the disability allowance authorities to suspend the further payment of this allowance to me. Truth is not what one chooses to believe, truth is what is represented by the actual happenings of life. Actions speak louder than words and these actions generate the evidence for one's beliefs and future actions. Although I believed in an afterlife, I was still concerned that success of a particular way of life should be judged at the material sphere also, putting aside the idea that seeking a better afterlife was the goal of human existence because this outcome was not available for objective assessment by man. The UK and India had contrasting ways of life and I considered myself fortunate that I had been born into a culture of religiosity in India but had spent my adult life in the UK with its history and culture of world domination physically and economically and a present population consisting largely of non-believers in God. I had the opportunity to study and compare the two systems. At an individual level one could measure success by assessing happiness from wealth and fame acquisition, good health, longevity, or the satisfaction derived from the fulfillment of one's duties, or all of these. It was generally accepted that money could not buy happiness, and despite the poverty of India visitors have remarked on the gentle culture of the people and their apparent happiness with life. It did not appear to me that suicide rates were any higher there than in the UK. This was because people believed in fate, which is a religious idea, at a wider level however one must address the issue of how the UK ruled over the world producing great scientists such as Newton and Faraday. It was clear from history since before the Norman invasion that British governmental philosophy was guided by the doctrine of the survival of the cleverest and physically fittest to enable the exploitation of world resources for the comfort of its people, and this national path was given renewed impetus following the findings of another of its scientists Charles Darwin, that of the survival of the fittest by natural selection. Perhaps people were more religious in the UK centuries ago than they are in the 21st century and nation benefited from these creative people. And the Almighty must have had plans for mankind to develop and also provide a threat of unity for the future of the world in permitting the English to rule the globe for so long. India was a large diverse country with hundreds of kingdoms but came together to eject its foreign colonial power largely through the efforts of a deeply religious person, Mahatma Gandhi and the country that fed housed and clothed 350 million people at independence in 1947 was now successfully looking after the welfare of a billion citizens with the economy booming at a nearly 10% growth rate. 
It was therefore clear that religiosity had not been an impediment to the people as a whole, that is, it was not a cost as Professor Stephen Dawkins seems to think. India is without doubt the most developed economic and military power to have emerged from among the countries that had previously been colonized by Western imperialists. In contrast, my observation was the population of the UK is generally not happy. And what a culture to prescribe to the world. The UK had the highest crime rate in Europe and teenage pregnancies rates seemed to be the highest in the world with 6,000 abortions in the month of January 2007 alone. Young people were encouraged to leave their family homes soon after their teens and without adequate parental guidance and support they soon found themselves in the doldrums. A large number sought to enhance their life by engaging in sex, alcohol and drug abuse. The government actually promoted alcoholism with the extension in public house opening hours and gambling with the opening up of the economy to Las Vegas-style super casinos. Further, the nation had been invaded by foreign cultures from across the globe and this trend was continuing with the recent influx of immigrants from the countries of Europe. Pakistanis, Indians, Sri Lankans, Bangladeshis, Latvians, Lithuanians, Polish, Portuguese, Chinese, Vietnamese, Somalis, Nigerians, Zimbabweans, Brazilians, Australians, you name it they were all in the UK, with its indigenous Scottish, Welsh Irish and Cornish nationalities. In a bid to reinvigorate its world supremacy endeavours the UK experimented with economic theories to bring in a plentiful supply of cheap labour that the indigenous population was unable to generate, and international finance, so that it allowed mass immigration and facilitated its companies to be taken over by foreign firms, such as the acquisition of the chorus steel business by Tata of India. Its natural resources, like minerals, timber, natural gas and fisheries were nearing exhaustion. And the nation's recent attempts at re-establishing itself as a colonial military power by interfering in the affairs of other countries failed to produce the desired results in countries such as Iraq and Afghanistan. In African countries its influence was now being replaced by that of China. The foreigners settled in the UK altered the traditional British culture and were not generally patriotic towards the country they live in. There was therefore a debate in the country on the pros and cons of multiculturalism and the promotion of certain British values to achieve the necessary social cohesion and for generating the community spirit needed to maintain UK strategic interests around the world. The indigenous British people did not tolerate multiculturalism as was seen in the manner in which some of them bullied Indian Bollywood star Shilpa Shetty with racist taunts in a television reality show, Celebrity Big Brother, and from my own experiences at the University of Greenwich and outside. So what kind of culture did the UK represent now from the one prevailing 100 years ago? A mixed bag, uncertain of its national values and goals intending to become a police state in order to cope with its problems. And in the long term the indigenous population will become even more diluted so that it would hardly have demonstrated the concept of the survival of the most powerful species the world has ever seen in action. Of the two national states, the British therefore deserve the title of being the failed species, whereas the Indian species has gone from strength to strength. The greatness of Hinduism is that it was tolerant of other belief systems and recognized that God may be approached and worshipped by numerous different paths. One was therefore justified in asking whether this spirituality produced India's strength as a nation and whether a religious way of living one's life may therefore be the most successful philosophy for both material and spiritual outcomes. Professor Lord Robert Winston, why do we believe in God? questioned whether there was any evidence that the divine idea might be carried in our genes and indicated that the dopamine D4 receptor gene, DRD4, could be more biologically active in some people which could therefore be partly responsible for a religious bent in these people. He has further referred to evidence from studies of identical and non-identical twins that religious thinking or behavior tended to be genetically linked, 
suggesting that it might confer comfort or other advantages that could form the basis for natural selection. Intrinsic religiosity, which seems to incorporate a notion of spirituality, was however much more likely to be inherited than extrinsic religiosity which tends to be a product of a person's environment and direct parental influence. Could a higher level of the population of India be genetically predisposed to a religious way of life than in the UK? And how could this gene-slash-receptor be reconciled with the idea of the unseen soul in Advaita? A likely candidate for the genetic basis of religiosity would be a truth gene, for truth is the basis of survival at the material level so that it would explain man's development from the hunter-gatherer life to the complex world in which he lived now, and a quest for the truth is the fundamental basis of spirituality. Given that everything is delusional a belief in God was the only sanctuary for humans to bring some peace of mind needed to cope with life's hurdles and its injustices. Delusions must affect the general population since from childhood one was subjected to all kinds of information on what the wider world was like, what one should think, how one should behave, and what one should be doing in life. Man acted according to the beliefs generated by his observations and upbringing and on a particular day could easily be deluded into actions that were unjustified causing harm to others and leading to self-harm too. Drugs were of virtually no use in alleviating delusions. The cure came from being shown the truth. That was why a primary duty of a state towards its citizens was the provision of good education facilities. But how did one attain truth when societies and states generally functioned on the basis of delusional beliefs and the education provided was flawed? These societies consequently had a high level of crime and a youth in bewilderment, as seen in the UK whose education system was now oriented towards producing the skills required by the economy rather than for the mental development of the citizen. Its solution was then institutionalize offenders in prisons or mental institutions and serve antisocial behavior orders on the young. Religious establishments provided another source of knowledge that guided the individual through life. The major religions had the shortcoming that people became categorized into the pigeonholes of being either a Christian, Muslim, Jew, or others, and the important issues of the truth of right and wrong actions and intrinsic religiosity among followers became overlooked. Some humans got to be known as avatars in their own lifetimes and others became gurus and spiritual leaders by virtue of being born to perceive a very high level of knowledge from an early age. Individual priests provided education to their communities and societies, and were found everywhere especially in India where the Brahmin caste also conducted religious ceremonies and rituals as the guardians of Vedic knowledge which few would otherwise have had time to read and understand. Depending on the religious teachings received individuals may live a fruitful life or one based on delusions. In the absence of a good guru, knowledge could also come from the self-purging of one's delusions to achieve a sanity of mind through one's life experiences, a process that should be described as the hard way in which the truth came from God Himself. Without a truthful attitude in one's thoughts and behavior there could be no realization of God. From within Hinduism Vaishnavism was the truly universal religion for it encompassed the celebration and preservation of creation, the love of the divine, duty, and the acceptance of fate as its essential components. The philosophy I am the master of my fate was untrue as a person was driven by circumstances and the knowledge that he had gained up to any given moment in time, which was the product of his circumstances. Since I came to the UK at a young age and lived my adult life in the country I had benefited from the tremendous educational opportunities that had come my way in science, economics, agriculture and general knowledge from watching excellent television programs. As a British citizen by naturalization and since we as a family had chosen to continue to live in the UK, for the time being at least, and with Rupa being a British citizen by birth, I decided that the truth must also be that I was effectively supporting the UK state in its objectives and therefore must work for a better future in the country and for this country rather than harp on about India's greatness. 
To me the multicultural complexion of UK represented a microcosm of the United Nations and therefore could in the future become a force for good in the world by demonstrating how different races and cultures might live together in harmony for the common good of mankind and of the planet Earth by the promotion of sustainable lifestyles and infrastructure development. It remained to be seen if this nation would adapt itself towards that end or continue with its path towards selfish consumerism fueled by imperialistic foreign policies. Having checked various websites again for career opportunities and finding none of much interest I however wondered whether I may have to be content with a future of being a mere observer. So why do we believe in God? I had a dream in which I saw that I was choosing not to commit suicide so felt that life must be worth living despite our troubles. I thought of sending my memoirs to Professor Robert Winston by email to begin publicizing my book taking advantage of the question he had raised in his books, Why do we believe in God? And the human mind. I obtained his email address from his secretary. As I worked on the idea I found myself deciding that the memoirs would give a bad impression of me and of my mental state so that it should not be sent, at least not at this stage. So what to send? I started drafting a letter and worked on it for two days, with Rashmi watching me concernedly as I worked away on the computer. Many ideas came and got rejected as inappropriate and even as displaying delusional thoughts. For example, I don't know why other people believe in God but I was led to believe that He is the provider of all knowledge and wisdom, etc. Finally on our anniversary morning, February 15, 2007, I seemed to have a draft ready as follows, the reason that I believe in God is that it is a self-evident fact, everything one sees around us and within us is God so that one must take care of everything. The Hindus subdivided God into numerous dimensions including the trinity of Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva as the creator, preserver, and destroyer, and the entity of Shakti the details of which are sketchy. But can God be represented mathematically by for example the string theory or other ways of combining the theories of Newton, Einstein, etc. It is highly unlikely. The essential question is whether the reality has a spiritual dimension? The answer to this must be yes because individuals have experienced the spiritual force of God upon themselves, not just held a delusion of the existence of God. Science, medical and physical, cannot uncover the whole truth, for example is there a satisfactory explanation of why two heavenly bodies should attract each other in a force called gravity? One does not have to see electrons in orbitals in order to teach chemistry. One may apprehend the reality if one moves from experimental science as an intellectual pursuit, which no doubt also produces material benefits, and the practice of observing and recording the data generally available, and theorizing from these, to a form of meditation that brings one into communication with God. This leads to realization, but not everyone has the mental state to engage in this devotional activity or has the right circumstances within which to practice it. That is all I can say. As far as evolutionary biology is concerned one may wish to look for a candidate gene responsible for seeking the truth for this appears to be the fundamental reason that Homo sapiens triumphed over other animals which are now well on the way to being wiped out from the planet. Man is not a social animal. Who is to say that such a gene has not mutated since man's time as a hunter-gatherer, and with the planet getting increasingly crowded, that it will not mutate into a more biologically active form at some time somewhere in the future. Indeed, such is the damage being wreaked upon the natural environment by man's selfish actions in pursuit of comfort that such an occurrence may be the only hope to save the planet as we know it from premature demise, that is, before the sun is finally exhausted to the point that life is impossible on earth. Perhaps a scientific mind will come along to solve the cold fusion problem. Or will another cataclysmic geological or heavenly event be required to make the present dinosaurs extinct as the restart button is pressed for another round of evolution? As far as whether global warming is caused by greenhouse gases and has become a problem for man to negotiate, 
Have not Gaia processes been dealing with it all these years since the Industrial Revolution began? Perhaps the rate of carbon emissions is so high now that the capacity of the planet and its surrounds can no longer effectively deal with it. Has not the depletion of the ozone layer stopped and even reversed? What is there to worry about? One may speculate on why the universal being has created the universe and this world within it with its geological and evolutionary history in a so-called grand design. Some have said that he creates to amuse himself and may even be a joker at heart. The manner in which fellow human beings and especially politicians conduct themselves certainly produces much laughter. But returning to your question why do we believe in God? A man's conduct is governed by his intrinsic religious beliefs, which override his animalistic instincts and susceptibilities depending on the strength and direction of these beliefs. Our existence is pointless but for the fact that the elusive universal being has made itself known to us and continues to make his presence felt in life so that man is kept interested in the question of what to do and how to conduct oneself in life and what the future holds. Incidentally, day-to-day acknowledgement of God amounts to devotional worship of the divine, which somehow produces health benefits, especially to one's mental state, giving one the peace of mind to withstand the injustices and misfortunes that may come one's way. After drafting this letter I found that my nose was no longer as runny as it had been and wondered if this meant that my health was now in full recovery because of the latest finding. But with Rashmi harassing me as I pondered over the draft I decided that it too was dangerous to be sent out. But I had to send something in order to progress my case. It turned out to be a two-liner, Dear Professor Lord Robert Winston, Why do we believe in God? 1. The reason that I believe in God is that it is a self-evident fact, everything one sees around us and within us is God so that one must take care of everything. 2. And human existence is pointless if it was not for the fact that the elusive universal being has drawn attention to itself through various momentous historical events and continues to make his presence felt to those living in devotion to God. Yours sincerely. On waking up on February 16, 2007 I considered that a man was trapped by his circumstances. New questions started in the mind, what was faith and what was devotion? I did not believe in the faith attitude, that if one carried on working on the presumption or belief that it was God's will that one was doing one would achieve the end one desired. But I had been devoted to truth and all that entailed, and had acted initially in faith based on visions that I had had, which were to materialize to the end point that I would be getting my job back at the University of Greenwich. It dawned on me that this end point was not being reached, whereupon I started analyzing myself and pursuing the truth of my visions and other indications in fate on the basis of devotion to truth and I was recording everything so that my experience would become public knowledge. So perhaps God had no choice but to guide me to the realization summarized in the email to Lord Robert Winston. I analyzed the details of what I had sent, wondering what it meant in terms of how I should live from now onwards. So that one must take care of everything, did it mean I must tell Rashmi that I was giving up meat for example? Should I talk to every individual as if I was talking to God and see only the divine in them, that is no evil? Was there any truth in my now old theory of the nature of evil? What was duty? Did my understanding of Braham and personal God, Sri Krishna, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, etc. written through my memoirs still hold true, with the Braham being the universal being, that is, had I been guided upwards to the Braham in the past few days which had been a terrific struggle? As I scribbled these notes on 16th of February I was concerned that Rashmi may again consider these as a relapse of mental faculties, so I had to accede to her wish that I started a job application. I said to her, today I will write to Kent police to see if they will now give me the job now that I have been discharged from medical care. She replied, no. It turned out that she had already drafted a letter to Medway Matters newspaper run by Medway Council and gave this to me. 
I realized it was an opening to publicize my case so together we edited it and sent the letter, as follows, Dear Ms. Barnes, Kent Police my attention was drawn to the latest issue of Medway Matters and I could not miss the opportunity to write to you about an issue that has affected myself and my family. My apologies to you if this is not kind of question that I was supposed to ask or you were not expecting in the postbag. I would be grateful if you could explain to me how Kent's police authorities positive about disability and equal opportunity policies are interpreted please. Both policies as I understand it is to embrace people from all backgrounds into the staff force, provided they meet the set criteria and have the necessary competences. But my personal experience tells me that these policies exist in name only. Reality is something very different. I applied for a public inquiry officer's job in Rochester Police Station in 2005 and was successful at the interview. But the job offer was withdrawn from me after the authorities found out from their post-interview security and other checks that I had suffered from a minor form of mental illness in the past. It should be noted that my earlier illness was declared in the application and therefore the job offer was made with knowledge of this fact. The personnel department told me however that being in a customer service role would bring on that illness again. This is not a medically proven theory. As a proof, a year and a half later, I am doing a customer service job in shift system, working single-handedly and often dealing with a variety of difficult customers and I am considered a valued member of staff. But it is low-paid work for people less qualified than myself. As a PhD holder I can do so much more. I feel strongly that I have proven that I am of clean health and sound mind and the doctors have discharged me from the routine care I used to receive. Please kindly inform me if I can apply for a job with Kent Police in the future and if my application will receive unbiased treatment. Please withhold my name and address because of the personal and sensitive nature of this matter. The letter provided a clue to what my email to Professor Lord Robert Winston meant, it was clear that we were continuing with the battle. I went to the library to look for other jobs advertised, and sent a reminder email to the World Society for the Protection of Animals about the job application that I had made. After checking for other jobs and finding none, I ended up responding in depth to an email from my younger sister, deciding that taking care of everything must have also meant that I could not leave the family matter alone either. Somia had written, your departure was a little sudden. Not for me. Babu and Debin both remarked that they didn't get a chance to say goodbye. I was feeling very sad. Deben has written a three-page letter to Sean. It's lying in front of me now. Sorry to hear about your travails at Kolkata. I would really like to be able to consult Bobby. The present lawyer charged me a RS 1000 slash extra after you all left. I had to hand over to him a Xerox copy of the documents executed. I will phone Bobby and ask him his advice in the present situation. I don't know what kind of problems I will encounter to get Deben's money released. I invested one lock of Deben's money in Mies Post Office, and I used the monthly interest RS 600 slash for his expenditure. My one lock I spent most of to pay off my old debts, Scooty etc. The other one lock lying in the bank is the only source I can rely on for future imminent visits to Kolkata etc. And let me tell you one lock is not a big amount in today's world. When I think of the future of Deben I get nervous. Your meeting with Sudakar sounds planned on their part. I'm a simple person and do not understand the ways of God. I am starting to feel tired like Sean. My reply was, Dear Somia. I feel reinvigorated today, you will be pleased to know. By Rashmi's choice and somewhat against the wishes of the doctor I went off medication before we traveled to India. Now the doctor has discharged me from her psychiatric care altogether which I take to mean that I have been given a clean bill of health medically. Whether I will relapse into a severe mental condition such as the one which caused my hospitalization in 2004 remains to be seen. I am fighting for a clear mind, not least because I do not wish to be incarcerated again even though it was for a short period of time the first and hopefully the last time round.
I am continuing with my low-paid job in a shop to make ends meet. I also found that the engagement at work was therapeutic to the mind. I am in the lookout for a better job though. I turned 50 a month ago and am hoping for good health mentally and physically. I certainly do not wish to give up on life, let alone go dash before my time is up that is. I hope this message is helpful to you in some way in coping with your own hurdles, especially with regard to concerns for the future for our brother who is under your care for the present time and for your boys, Babu's health, and most of all your own health. I did not receive a reply from Nani to my letter a copy of which I gave to you. But as things turned out while I was discussing matters with Sudakar Nana sat next to him in the train from BBSR to Kolkata his mobile phone rang and it was Nani. She was in tears as we spoke and I listened to her unable to add anything to what I had written. They had received the letter and seemed concerned about your intentions, with Nani saying that she may even go to court over it if you acted in a way that they were unhappy with. Sudakar Nana then said something to Muna taking him aside in the train about the matter, perhaps thinking that they were involved in my decision concerning the power of attorney, which incidentally, is not true. They are however aware of the situation. But I still do not know what Nani wishes to happen, and especially whether they will take over the care of our brother should you fail at some stage in the future for any reason. We could have helped but consideration of Rupa's welfare makes me feel that we will be unable to come to India to live permanently, at least not in the near future. So I wait and see what the future holds for us all in our own lives. I am sorry that we left in a hurry as you put it without saying proper goodbye to my brother and Babu. My mind was still mulling over the matter relating to what I had done concerning the power of attorney especially concern over its impact for our brother so that I felt I had to leave matters standing without showing favoritism towards either of my sisters. I love both my sisters for what they are. I hope I have made the situation clearer. Was life not too serious a matter for God to have really indicated to me that that he was a joker in the creation of the world, Maranam Joker? Considering the goings-on in just two families, mine and Rashmi's, life was so interesting. It was an amazing creation just on facts like, it would have been stupid if every human being was the same and the basis of the saying that beauty lay in the eye of the beholder. There was so much happiness and laughter. I was reminded physically of the joy and the power of sex. I also reminded myself of how much I loved music from my college and natural resources institute days, especially instrumental soul and funky music and classical Indian music. Watching a TV program where young people were displaying amazing acrobatics and body-twisting abilities made me think of the great variety and diversity of humanity. The beauty of the languages, especially English language was also worth reflecting on. So how could it be pointless creation even for people who were not devoted to God? As I pondered over what I had sent to my sister, I also wondered if I was learning more about the universal being, who was perhaps answering Somya's questions, as well sorting her out. With a letter to Medway Council was he also getting me to act again in particular ways. I was agitated. Before going to work I saw a note from Rashmi, calm down. I know you so there is no point in justifying that you are a normal person. This was her response to an exchange that we had at breakfast where I argued with her about whether I had ever been a misconduct person, pointing out that I had had an unblemished 18-year career and two promotions before being classed as such by the university. The job at Shell Garage where I was dealing with hundreds of customers per shift, each encounter presenting a different situation provided me with the opportunity to test the latest knowledge contained in the phrase taking care of everything by assessing my new attitude and behavior. I had an encounter with a middle-aged male customer who asked me for 10 cigarettes but I checked a query if he had said 20. He said, no, if it was 10 I would be back here again. I said jokingly, what within half an hour? He smiled and said, he should give cigarettes up completely really, to which I retorted, why? Is there a law that says you have to live up to 100? For such were the nature of common laws in the UK. 
Reflecting on the email sent to Professor Robert Winston I interpreted, perhaps each of my actions needed care to ensure that I fulfilled my duties to the owner of the business as well as being ultra-helpful and polite to all customers. Did everything also mean living beings as well as inanimate objects, so that I should not have kicked away an empty cardboard box as I did? To be at one with the truth perhaps was not, after all, the way to be, as an incident with a young girl customer leaving behind change from a purchase she made indicated for I told her to take it as she might need it some day, normally I would have just accepted her decision. Was I was beginning to take care of other minor things? I was practicing seeing only the divine in each and every customer and living in happiness doing so until a major disaster on the premises with loose change took place for which I had to close the site down in order to make amends. I read into this incident, and another one in which a pot of banked money went unrecorded by me causing concern, that I was not to start living differently, like a saint perhaps caring for all, and quickly reverted back to the observational mode of being. I reflected on another incident in which a Scottish customer at work then told me that she had had an afterlife experience during an explosion where she had died but returned to life from her spiritual state, commenting further that she believed people are reborn, and as justice a Ku Klux Klan member could return as a black man in the next life. Did it mean that reincarnation was real, after all? My runny nose returned as off and on problem, and I decided it might be something to do with uncertainty in the mind on what I knew and did not know. Rushmi inadvertently produced the wrong company's loyalty card at Tesco, to which I remarked jokingly to the cashier, she is not with it, and reflected on the truth of the phrase if one spelled it with a capital I. Are you with it? 